Well, good evening. Welcome back. Good to see you here tonight. We're uh, going to pick up where we left off. We're dealing with the essence of God, and we got through three of the uh, attributes last week in terms of sovereignty and righteousness and justice. So we're going to pick up right there and keep moving right through. I hope it's a trust that it's edifying and a blessing. Uh, Even if you've been taught these various doctrines a thousand times before, it's always a refreshing blessing to review and to consider um, additional means of explanation and other techniques for instruction and other uh, approaches to understanding certain things. And and so any fresh approach is always useful because you never know. The person you're talking to, and um, in some cases I found... I thought that I was laying out there an excellent illustration and a great explanation. And to me, it was clear as anything, and it made no sense to them whatsoever. So, you know, you try something else, and you try something else. And then you take an approach that you think, well, this will never work. This is kind of dumb. And that's the one that clicks. <laughs> and the one that clicks, and you think, okay. And because uh, the imperative is feed my sheep. You know, you got to provide the food that they are capable of eating. And, um, And I can come to uh, certainly appreciate that. Open that up, and we'll be ready to pray. Ready to pick up with love. All right? Let's open with a word of prayer, asking the Father to set aside distractions and to bless our time of study this evening. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have this evening to return. And Father, I thank you for this hour. I thank you um, just for the blessing we have to study your truth. And and uh, we're a little bit more relaxed tonight and we can field questions and be a little bit more interactive if, if uh, it comes to that. And I just thank you, Father, that we have the blessings to be able to study to show ourselves approved. I thank you for basics. Never get tired of teaching the basics. Never get tired of studying the basics. And, uh, Father, it is a joy and a delight. And uh, if I ever reach the point, Father, that I think I don't need the basics ever again, Father, I know that pride is uh, is going before the fall. So, Father, uh, hedge me about, uh, hinder the, that kind of arrogance, and uh, continue to bless these studies. I thank you for new believers. I thank you for folks that are taking uh, these kind of classes for the first time ever. And I just rejoice, Father, that your plan goes forward. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. It's fun how the Lord has a different plan, you know. Um, this was supposed to be Dan Craw's class. Dan, uh, I've taught basics on two different occasions, even three different occasions over the years, and Dan uh, was hoping to write his own notebook and, and uh, teach uh, his own series of basics and, and have his, his book ready to go when the class was, was over. And Well, the Lord has other plans, and so we're, we're thankful for that. And uh, Keep him in your prayers and uh, the candidating that's taking place in, uh, in Corpus Christi. All right. Now we get to love, and uh, love uh, should be simple, uh, except for the fact that our culture um, bastardizes the term and just absolutely redefines it, mystifies it, twists it, perverts it. It's tragic what Satan does and his minions, what they do in the name of love, redefining things as love that is far from the biblical definition of love. And we understand when Satan does that and the adversary does that, what's even more heartbreaking is when Christians buy into it. And when those who should know better start to adopt attitudes that really reflect more of the spirit of this age than certainly a clear understanding of the text. And so uh, we're going to work hard to, uh, to remedy those aspects here today. 
We come to perhaps the most misunderstood attribute of God, his love. The cosmos world system and carnal humanity have developed some of the most perverted things and called them love, as was in the news all last year. You know, love wins and all of this other stuff, which is just enough to make you puke. Um, So it's no wonder then that human understanding of God's love is off track. Beneath the most false understandings of love is the, is the feature of gratification. And, uh, and I think some of that comes into our usage of love in different things that fall short of agape. And really what we need to do is drill down and define agape and define agapao and show how to the Greek mind, at least 2,000 years ago, they had so many different terms, including phileo and agapao and storgos and, and eros and, and various other forms that have just kind of all come to us with this one English word, love, all right? And so a person can love activities such as hunting, fishing, or golf, okay? Or Scrabble, all right? Whatever the activity may be. You might love a particular activity. Well, the Greeks would not have used agape for that, all right? Uh, Something of an interest, something of a pastime, or uh, something that rapport is developed in, all right? common interests, mutually uh, enjoyed activities and so forth, would not have fallen within the component of agape. These activities can gratify and supply personal enjoyment. Honestly, there's many occasions where love is not enjoyable, where agape is not enjoyable. Jesus didn't enjoy the cross, but he was there because of love. He so loved the church that he gave himself for her. The Father didn't enjoy the world, but He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So I think if we, right off the bat, if we can separate love from enjoyment, we've done ourselves a huge, huge favor, all right? Because it may not be pleasurable, it may not be enjoyable, it may not be gratifying when it comes right down to it. Um, a person might also love certain foods like fajitas, pizza, or chocolate. In such cases, these foods gratify our palate and they supply a personal enjoyment. All right. I love vanilla. My wife loves chocolate. So we have a, a mixed marriage related to <laughs> the different, different things there. All right. So we, we work those issues out. All too often in personal relationships, this pseudo love is generated through gratification in one form or another. All right. Well, what do they do for me? How do they gratify me in uh, different things? So long as self is being benefited, the love continues. But when that's gone, what do we say? Well, what have you done for me lately? And, oh, I've lost, I've fallen out of love. Okay, well, uh, you cannot fall into agape. And uh, this is, uh, it must be cultured and developed and nurtured on the basis of the integrity of soul. And that's what comes about as the Word of God shapes our thinking. And uh, once you understand God, God is agape. All right, God is not philos or storgos or uh, eros or any of the other forms of love. So long as self is being benefited, the love continues. All of this is contrary to God's form of love. God's love is not selfish, but sacrificial. It does not center on what uh, the loving one gets, but on what, rather, the loving one gives. And obviously, let me just open up a Bible here. I think 1 Corinthians 13 comes to mind. And uh, it's on your refrigerator. It's probably part of your wedding service. And different things. Um, Love, what does love do? All right. And uh, if we are minus love, let me see if I can scroll down here. See, when I make the words that big, it just doesn't scroll well. That's all right. I'll get over it. 
So if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and have all knowledge, and if I have all faith, and, and when we taught this, uh, we stressed the language of extreme, the hyperbole that comes across, all right? If you, if you speak every language that's ever been spoken on the earth, in fact, you speak every human language, you speak so many languages, now you've got to bring in angelic languages because you're running out of human languages. Um, obviously, nobody speaks that many languages. But, but the, uh, the language of extreme, it's hyperbole to communicate that even if all of this and you're minus love, it's, it's a waste of time. Likewise with prophecy. I mean, nobody's omniscient, except for God. But if you have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. So again, it uses the language of extreme to highlight that all those things minus love is worthless. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. So every one of these is designed as hyperbole to take matters to such an incredible extreme and uh, to show that uh, minus agape love, there is no service we do that has any value. No preaching, no evangelizing, no nothing. No giving. You can give a million dollars, all right? Please do. <laughs> but, without, but do so in love, all right? Don't do so minus agape love. That then becomes um, worthless. All right, and then, of course, the poem. The poem, then, that describes what agape is and is not, does and does not do. Uh, It's hard to put into English. Some of the Greek expressions don't communicate as well in the English, such as love is patient. Um, That's kind of, it's viewed in English as as an adjective or a description, right? Uh, In Greek, it's a verb. Love patiently waits. Love patiently, you know, do we have a verb for, I guess, is patient or patiently, patiently, yeah, suffers long. So yeah, love suffers long. Just make a verb out of it because it is a verb in the text. Love is kind. Love does kind things. Okay. Agape does kind things. So if you're not doing a kind thing, then you're not walking in love because agape does kind things. Um, Love is not jealous. And it's interesting, after love is patient, love is kind, we've talked about this with fruit of the Spirit, right? Because in fruit of the Spirit, we had that tandem of patience and kindness. So love is patient, love is kind. And once we, we start with those two activities, and then we get a list of what love doesn't do. Is not jealous, does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecoming, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. And you start looking at all those things love doesn't do, and you start to spotlight, a few of them start to spotlight things that maybe are features of, of, of my life or your life or somebody's, somebody's, you know, a hypothetical person's life. And you realize, wait a minute, uh, I keep a list of wrongs. Uh, well, quit. <laughs> Stop right now because love doesn't do that. All right? Love does not do that. And uh, seeking its own, that's not love. That's not agape. You know, and how many people are, are, are abusive and users and, and just manipulate people and, and demand such things? And, and, and it's, it's just, uh, you know, there's relationships that are built on, on just horrible foundations. And it's all selfish and abusive. It's all seeking its own. What am I going to get out of this? Say, and that's not agape. Agape doesn't do that. Maybe the biggest thing is there in verse 6. 
And this is why I think, and I, and I struggle with this, because I've got family members, extended family members. Um, agape does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. And this will cause conflict. It has, and it will continue to cause conflict in certain things. And people want to rejoice. We saw this morning in Jeremiah, weddings are supposed to be rejoicing occasions. Well, if it's a wedding that's not glorifying Jesus Christ, if it's a homosexual thing, for example, that's defying the scriptures, they may tell me that they're happy. I'm not going to tell them that I'm happy. Not for them, not for the Lord's sake, and not for the sake of the truth. Because agape does not rejoice in unrighteousness. And so they may call it love, they may call it happiness, and they may spend a long time convincing themselves that they are happy. You know, if you tell yourself something often enough, you may start believing it at a certain point. But agape does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. And that it's, it's, it's not, I'm telling you, it's not easy, okay? And, uh, and it sparks struggles within families and, and uh, different things. All right, agape bears all things. Agape believes all things. Agape hopes all things. And agape endures all things. Four more things that agape does. So we started with two things that agape does, a long list of things agape doesn't do, and then we wrap it up with four things that agape does. With uh, uh, universal statements, all things. Okay, all things. Bears, believes, hopes, endures. And that's useful as well, because there's a lot of things I don't believe. And uh, and I struggle. And I ask the Lord, I say, you know, increase my faith, because at the moment I'm struggling. And uh, somebody's telling me something, and I have reason to be skeptical. And I say, okay, Lord, I don't believe that, but love does. So let me walk in love, and let me accept, for, this, for the time being, what love believes, what love accepts, what love bears, what love hopes, and what love endures. All right, so there's the great definition of it there. So love does not center on what the loving one gets. You notice how many times in the Bible, by the way, you have a verse that includes agape love, and you also have a verb of giving. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Okay, John 3.16. Or Christ so loved the church that he gave himself for her. You have that connection of loving and giving. Loving and acting. Loving and doing. When uh, the pastor at Ephesus left his first love, Revelation chapter 2, what's he commanded to do? To return and do the deeds that he did at first. Because first love has first deeds. And I uh, appreciate, uh, appreciate that. All right. Even a brand new baby believer needs to learn the Greek word agape. A-G-A-P-E, agape. All right. Alpha, gamma, alpha, pay, eta. Or pi, eta. Agape. And because... Uh, even even if you're not going to learn Greek or you're not going to learn even, I, I think anyone ought to learn at least 30 Greek words, right? Uh, just just learn some basic vocabulary and, and agape better be item one on the list, okay? Chorus after that, learn, learn love and learn grace. Um, but the primary love of God is agape love, okay? God, when it's, the Bible says God is love, it says God is agape. He is not philos, he's not storgos, he's not eros. All right. The concept of agape is totally outside the realm of human experience. It is entirely within the realm of God as the source and motivation for its expression. When it comes right down to it, and I know the pagans, the Greeks in the pre-New Testament era, they used agape for different things. But by the time of the New Testament, it, it was, it's very clear, at least in our scriptures, that agape is of God and not of man. Uh, Satan cannot produce this. The world cannot produce this. The flesh does not produce this. 
It is the, the fruit of the Spirit. It is facet number one of the fruit of the Spirit is agape. And so uh, within the realm of God as the source and motivation for its expression. It's defined in the passage we just read, 1 Corinthians 13, in a 16-part detailed description. Agape love is presented as an ideal standard for a believer's life. And uh, human effort won't let you measure up to that. It's got to be the fruit of the Spirit as the Spirit works in and through you. Also, we want to include, of course, 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8. It is, a, it is a, a reality for those that are born of God. Let us love one another, for love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And this is, uh, that's why I say it's beyond the realm of humanity. I don't think an unbeliever can truly agape, agapa. I don't think they can. Because it's a mark of our divine paternity. It's a mark of being born of God. Everyone who agapaos is born of God and knows God. The one who does not agapao does not know God, for God is agape. By this, the love, the agape of God was manifest in us. All right, manifest in us. So the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. All right. Read that already. Verse 9. God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So we, ha- we are equipped to do so because he did. And that's the point. So this is a passage that addresses believers as agapetoi. We are beloved ones. A passage that exhorts believers to agapao one another. You know, we say dearly beloved, right? In weddings and funerals and the start of certain church services maybe, I don't know. But beloved is a term that the New Testament applies to the body of Christ, to born-again believers in the church age. We are beloved. Uh, Actually, it's not used in that sense in the Old Testament, but it is in the New Testament for church-age believer priests. In a short, alliterative passage, the Christian way of life is here described. Agapetoi, agapomen, alleluus. Beloved, let us love one another. Agapetoi, agapomen, alleluus. Is that too small? Right there. Agapetoi, agapomen, alleluus. Beloved, let us love one another. All right. Our love for one another is not only beneficial to one another, but also a testimony to the love of God that so loved the world. In fact, they're supposed to know that we are Christians by our agape. And if agape is the standard for the world's recognition of our regenerate status, um, are we communicating loud and clear? Or are we sending a distorted message? (laughs) All right. All right, so that's, those are the notes on love. Any questions on that? Comments, thoughts, concerns? Is there anything in the scriptures that define God's love in the terminology of romance? There's, uh, <laughs> again, there's uh, certain philosophies that are very common in our day and age related to um, romanticism as a equivalent 
or a surrogate or substitute or, or synonymous expression with agape love. That if you don't, uh, you know, date your wife or court your wife or, or you know, and, I, and, and I'm getting in trouble tonight, but uh, <laughs> I'm not saying don't do those things. Okay, do those things, right? Especially, we've <laughs> got newlyweds here. Um, do those things, all right? That doesn't stop just because she said, yes, son, I do, and you get married. You, uh, but that's not agape. That's what I'm saying. It's not agape. And uh, we, we have to keep our terms straight related to that, all right? Tighten it up just a touch. Eternal life. The next attribute. So we've, we've studied sovereignty, righteousness, justice, love. Eternal life. God is outside of space and time, is the creator of space and time. He alone is the uncreated being of I am, without beginning, without ending. He is pure existence, always has been, always will be. Um, without beginning, without end. In some respects, we, we claim our own eternal life, but our own eternal life, if we want to have more precision to it, would be, we can use the term everlasting life, right? Because we had a beginning of that eternal life. And so, you know, uh, maybe our beginning of biological life would, was in the, the 1960s and the beginning of our eternal life was in the 1970s, uh, but it had a beginning, it will never have an end, all right? It will never have an end. God, on the other hand, yes, he'll never have an end, but likewise, he never had a beginning. He is the eternal I am. And so that's uh, significant. He's the only eternal I am. Every angel is a created being. Every angel is finite. When he's rebuking Satan in, in Ezekiel 28, he says, from the day you were created. And God remembers that day, see. And that's uh, part of, I think, Satan's insanity because Satan doesn't believe what God's telling him. God remembers what happened the day before Satan arrived. Of course, Satan doesn't remember. He wasn't here. (laughs) And so the day he arrived was his creation day. He has no memories of anything prior to his creation day. All the angels, we believe, were created on the same day. All right? As far as we know. On the day you were created. And, and, And only one being has a begotten day, and that's Jesus Christ and his humanity. Today I have begotten thee, he tells the Son. But the angels, he said, from the day I created you. And that's significant. So God has eternal life, although it may be more accurate to say that God is eternal. He is the eternal God in Deuteronomy 33, 27. He is the eternal God. He dwells in eternity. I like Psalm 90. Even from everlasting to everlasting, before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And that's a, it's a great way to express eternity past, eternity future, from everlasting to everlasting. Okay? And um, only God can, have, can make this claim. The physical universe can't make this claim. Physicists recognize that the, earth, that the universe is finite, that it had a beginning. There's no infinite series of moments in the past for the universe. They don't like to admit that, but they, they, they're forced to. <laughs> it's kind of fun. All right. The realm of time is bounded by eternity past and eternity future. Sometimes I reference those as the alpha and the omega in terms of the alpha moment, the omega moment. 
Uh, time is a series of moments, right? And we watch moments go past. And we can't undo it. We can't rewind it. We can't back up. When the moment is past, the moment is past. The next moment is on the way. It's, a, it's a ever, never stopping, never slowing down. It's just a, the, the flow of time. It's monodirectional, nonstop flow of time. And uh, we have a series of moments from the alpha moment to the omega moment. And every other moment in between is encompassed within this dimension of time. That's why uh, you and I tend to reference things in terms of before, after, since, until. We have such temporal adjectives that relate to things in a, in a before and after way. God, God doesn't look at things that way. He's not bound by those limitations the way you and I are. He's beyond all of that, transient and imminent, and he's observing everything simultaneously. Everything and every when. And that's the realm of God. All right, Psalm 90 establishes the stark contrast between God and fallen man. He's the refuge for all generations of mankind. From generation to generation, we can appreciate that. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations, say. And that's why it's fun to yeah, meet your mother when she comes to town and things like that. You get to see the faithfulness of God from generation to generation. Fallen humanity is finite in physical life of dust to dust. Usually this gets recited in funerals. I'll be preaching one on Friday. And uh, du- ashes to ashes and dust to dust. And here we are. You turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep in the morning. They are like grass which sprouts anew. Just the transient nature of humanity in time. The judgments of Adam and the flood have produced shorter lifespans with greater urgency for wisdom. Yeah, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. When he realized just how finite our days are. And it's harder when you're younger and things, you seem like you're immortal and eternal and everything's in front of you. And, and then uh, at a certain point, you kind of look around and realize, I probably have more behind me than I have in front of me. All right. And you start to wonder, have I, you know, am I over the hill or can I just see it from here? What's the, how, to, how does that work? But teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. And if he's gracious enough to give me tomorrow, I want to use it to obtain his wisdom in, uh, in these things. Other passages for eternal life include, here's some of my favorites, and maybe you've got some favorites as well that aren't on this list. Isaiah 44, 6. I am the first, I am the last, there is no God besides me. Uh, 1 Timothy six sixteen, Who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. 2 Peter 3, 8. With the Lord, a, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. Or a watch in the night, by the way. Pro, uh, Psalms is even more extreme than Second Peter's quotation. And of course, Revelation 1.4. He who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. It's a title for the eternal Father. Any questions on eternal life? So when God gives us his kind of life, what kind of life do you think it is? It's an eternal life, because that's God's kind of life. The gift of God is eternal life. You know, the Zoe, we get, we get bios life, that's our biology, 
We get bios life, and we're born with bios life, physically alive but spiritually dead. When we trust in Christ for eternal life, we receive Zoe life. And Zoe is the Greek word for, for God's kind of life. In him was Zoe, and Zoe was the light of men. And the blessings of Zoe life, see, that's the only life that's ever called eternal in the Scriptures, is Zoe life. Bios is never called eternal. Other words for life. Once you learn all the words for love, then you can learn all the words for life. <laughs> okay? And I recommend those. Any questions on eternal life? Omniscience. God knows everything. And this is, in some ways, the easiest one to teach. In some ways, it's the toughest one to teach. And you can, you can, you can learn omniscience in, in 30 seconds, and you can spend decades studying what does God know. And it's, uh, it'll take you into some amazing realms. God knows everything. That's the short answer. But the long answer is that everything is more than you think it is. Okay? Everything encompasses... Remember those moments from Alpha to Omega? And every, every moment of reality? It's actually bigger than that. Because there are alternate timelines. There are what-if scenarios. There are choices and realities that, that never come about but could come about if different decisions get made. And if different decisions get made, well then there is an entirely different string of realities that then follow. And before you know it, you can't re- you, you know, you, you're asking, am I, am I in a Bible class or am I watching a Doctor Who episode? Am I, am I, am I caught up in an in a, a, a theory versus B theory time travel uh, conundrum? All right? And, and we gotta, we got to recognize it because the Scriptures deal with this. The Scriptures deal with this, and they, I think they deal with it in a very beautiful way, in a way that causes us to realize that the plan of God is so much bigger than we ever give it credit for. So I'll try to explain some of that here tonight. The Lord is a God of knowledge. But don't stop there, okay? He is all-knowing. That's omni-science from the Latin, but he's also all-wise, that's omni-sapience. He's also, um, uh, he's, just, he's perfect in his knowledge and he's perfect in his wisdom. And, and usually that all gets lumped together under the heading of omniscience, and, and I'm starting to wonder if we ought to just break it out and give the wisdom of God its own heading. But the Lord, that's Yahweh, is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. And so uh, we need to understand this. Unlike temporal creatures, God's knowledge is not an accumulated knowledge achieved through steps and stages of time. Everything that I know now has accumulated over the years. And it's been built upon other things, things that I used to know. And in fact, much of what I know now, I don't know anymore because I've forgotten. <laughs> okay? And I would have to kind of relearn certain things. And then there's other things that I'm glad I've forgotten because I don't want to know them anymore. And then other things. And so we are, we are progressive in how we accumulate uh, knowledge. God's not that way. Okay? He's outside of space and time. He's outside of sequence. His knowledge is, is pure knowledge of all that is and all that could be. Every actuality and every potentiality. That's huge. Okay? And the counterfactuals in particular outweigh all the factuals, and that's just a given. Every, everything that's true is outnumbered by everything that's not true. And that's easy to explain. 
And, 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 and children get this. You can explain this to a, to a four-year-old, and, and they'll get this. It's simple, okay? When you, when you just start playing true and false games, and you start identifying, you know, um, you, you ask, well, what, what color is your shirt? You know, you ask a little kid, what color is your shirt? And there's one answer, right? It, it is pink. It's not red or blue or yellow or green or purple. Or, I mean, you can spend an hour just making up colors. And, and, and everything that's not true, every counterfactual, is always going to outnumber the reality of what is. What is is reality, is what is. But what might be, what could be, what might have been, what might have been, see. So um, the, the, the what might have been but weren't that God has excluded from his plan. Because remember, the Father is bringing about a plan that glorifies Jesus Christ with the, to the maximum glory. What he excluded were those what ifs that we think might have been pretty cool, but God knows better. And uh, to bring about a, a world like that would have been a diminished glory for Jesus Christ. And so, uh, and some of these things, let me tell you, some of these things we struggle to accept, and many of them we have to accept on a faith basis. Because we see an awful lot of evil in the world, and, and if it was us, most of us would have, would have lessened that evil. We would have had less disease, less sickness, less bad things. But understand that in permitting what he's permitted, he's bringing about the greater glory for Jesus Christ. And he knows better than we do in all of these details. So we'll demonstrate that as well. So he is perfect in knowledge. God's knowledge is not accumulated through steps and stages of time. His past, present, and foreknowledge are all features of his timelessness, but are more so features of his infinite mind. He is one truly perfect in knowledge, Job 36.4 and Job 37.16. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Do you know about the layers of the thick clouds, the wonders of one perfect in knowledge? In the rebuke here in the book of Job. God's knowledge is not simply limited to facts. He possesses infinite knowledge and understanding and wisdom. His knowledge has not only observed all things, but has thoroughly analyzed all things and related all things to one another in his infinitely perfect plan. All right. This uh, aspect is overlooked as it relates to his omnipotence. Job 36.5 Behold, God is mighty, but does not despise any. He is mighty in strength of understanding. And I think this, is, uh, this answers many of the dumb things that are out there, like, well, can God build a stone so big he cannot lift it? Right? Let me tell you, God's smarter than that, that stupid hypothetical you just threw out there. Okay? God possesses knowledge of every reality and every potential reality um, as a result of his creating volitional creatures. See, God, it wasn't an accident that God made the angels and that God made humans with volitional capacity. We can make choices. And he doesn't pull like a puppet master on the strings every choice we make. We have discretion. And sometimes we make choices that are contrary to his will and he permits that. He establishes boundaries. He only permits it to a certain extent, and then he steps in and, and administers some judgment. But even when he does so, he is not coercing our volition. Right? Um, Jonah was vomited up on a beach 
after three days in a whale? Was his volition coerced? God still said, go to Nineveh. And, and Jonah finally, volitionally, went to Nineveh because he decided that uh, he didn't want any more whale vomit. All right, That each step of the way is not God's sovereignty coercing volition, but it is God's sovereignty orchestrating our conditions and our circumstances because he knows what choices we'll make in every circumstance. This is important. All right. So every what if. He possesses knowledge of every reality and every potential reality. He knows all the would'ves, could'ves, and should'ves. We've got tons of them. Oh, we got tons of them. A lot of times, you know, we a lot of our regrets are shaped this way based upon, man, what I should have done, what I would have done, man, what I could have done. And God knows them all. Matthew chapter 11 is one of my favorite texts. Jesus pronounces a woe in Matthew chapter 11. Woe to you, Chorazin. And he's, he's, he's denouncing cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. The Calvinists would say they could not repent, but the scripture says they did not repent. And Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. This is what we call a second-class condition. It is not true. But if it was true, here's what the result would have been. It's called a counterfactual, right? And we do it all the time. Every time we drive, we, we, we think this way. We pull up to an intersection. I think, okay, if I, if I pull out right now, that truck's going to smash me to bits. So I'm not going to pull out right now. If I do, that truck's going to smash me. So I'm not going to do that. And we have, of course, very limited in our scope of what we can foresee just a few seconds ahead. But God, of course, has infinite foreknowledge of every what if. If Jesus, or somebody like Jesus, had done miracles like Jesus did, if, he, if maybe, uh, you know, who was around in Tyre and Sidon? Maybe uh, Elijah? Okay. If after Elijah was done uh, with his contest on, on Mount Carmel, he could have gone to Tyre and could have done some of these miracles. Could have done some Jesus miracles. Maybe fed 5,000 or walked on water or what have you. <clears throat> and had he done so, they would have repented long ago on sackcloth and ashes. And the point being, though, of course, is that no one did those miracles back in that day. God didn't assign those miracles back in that day. But had he done so, this would have been the outcome. So why didn't God do it? It wasn't his plan. It was a diminished glory for Jesus Christ. See? So can they then blame God and say, you should have sent us those miracles? No, because we are accountable for the circumstances and conditions that we are in when God places us in those circumstances and conditions. And we can't, it's not a moral victory or we can't weasel our way out and say, well, yeah, I failed that test, but boy, I really would have passed this one over here. <laughs> okay, I totally failed that test, but man, I, I, would have done, I would have done great on this test over here. Why didn't you send me this test? Okay, well, we don't know that. We're just making a ludicrous claim. God knows. And even if we would have had glorious victories in this realm, that wasn't his plan, it wasn't his design. 
So, it'll be more to- uh, tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the Day of Judgment than you. This, this chapter is, is critical. And Capernaum, they are the pinnacle. You will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. So think about the miracles that were done in Capernaum. And if, if Abraham had done those, or Lot, or anyone living in the days of Sodom, maybe you know if Abraham would have gone and done those, those miracles in, in Sodom. Not only would they have been spared in 2000 B.C., but it says it would have remained to this day. Think about what a revival would have been launched that would have allowed Sodomites to continue 2,000 years later. That's, that's an extraordinary statement that Jesus makes right there. God knows all the what-ifs. So God is patiently working out His own plan, allowing us to realize and understand certain things only after He brings them about. Jesus answered and said to him, What I do... Uh, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. <laughs> and I think God is very gracious in limiting what we know and when we know it. I think He's very gracious. I think He's patient. I think He's long-suffering. I think He's wise so that we don't learn too much too soon to where we get intimidated or we get fearful or we get prideful. I think um, on a need-to-know basis, like a security clearance, okay, I think on a need-to-know basis, God makes us aware of just enough whereby we can walk by faith and trust in Him for the rest. And that's His design. That's absolutely His design. Ultimately, He works all things together for good, Romans eight twenty eight. even if we don't understand it. We creatures of time, bound by time, we have to claim this by faith. We look at Romans eight twenty eight and we say, all right, Lord, You're not a liar. I, I love You. I believe You. I don't see it yet, so I'm waiting. <laughs> All things work together for good. Say, so, all right, Lord, because so I have quite a few things going on right now in my life that are not good. At least if they are, I don't understand how. But I'm taking it by faith that it will work together. It's as pieces in a puzzle. They're all going to fit, and they're all going to come together. It's going to produce something that is ultimately good for Jesus Christ, to those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. And it starts with Jesus Christ for His good and then our good in Him. See. Again, don't confuse goodness with um, pleasant or enjoyable. <laughs> All right? Because there's a lot of things that are good for you that are not pleasant or enjoyable. And yet, they are eternally good for the glory of Jesus Christ. The finite human mind can only grasp the fringes of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Romans 11.33 Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. And yet, what what a privilege for you and for me that we search the unsearchable, that we fathom the unfathomable that we approach the unapproachable. It's, uh, it truly is a, a great paradox and conundrum and blessing for the body of Christ. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees, not as man sees, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 
What a vital truth. And I enjoy that. I dwell on that. To me, this is a key facet of God's um, omniscience. It's a key facet on what he perceives. We need to rest in this. We need to adopt this. We need to quit looking at outward appearances and, and, and look with spiritual discernment and trust in the Lord and what he's designed for us and what he knows. Clearly, we teach our children this. We, t- we, we train everybody up in this. You know, I don't want my boys all led astray by some attractive female that has an outer beauty, but it, the soul is as ugly as anything under the sun. I don't want my girls, my daughters, seduced by some guy that may be outwardly handsome with you know, a lot of hair and teeth and whatever else. And, and inwardly, inwardly, he is just as ugly as anything. We've got to look with righteous judgment. See, we gotta we gotta look at things as God looks at things and trust in His omniscience. Ask Him to hedge us about and protect us, based upon what He knows to be uh, for the maximum glory of Jesus Christ. And if I'm on the verge of making a mistake, if I'm if I'm going to move to the wrong town or take the wrong job or marry the wrong girl or, or any of these things, I go to my Father in prayer and I say, Father, overrule, overrule these circumstances, close these doors. Say, Father, I believe this is your will, but if I'm wrong, Father, not my will, but thine be done. And you've got to show me, Father. I'm kind of thick, so make it clear. Take it so out of my hands, Father, that I can praise you for closing those doors in, uh, in so many ways. Job 26, 14. Behold, these are the fringes of his ways, and how faint a word we hear of him. But his mighty thunder, who can understand? You know, when we think we've got a grasp on the Word of God, we just, we just caught a whisper. We just caught a faint word. We just, we know the fringes. We know there is so much more to know. And when we step beyond the boundaries of mortality and time and the limitations of our present temporal existence, boy, the things that, that we're going to know, right? Things which eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared, but we're going to enter into that. And then we're going to know. We'll have dimensions of capacity that we don't have now. I think we're so limited now by the finite nature of humanity, plus sin on top of that, that, that hampers our capacity to, uh, to, to know and understand. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, 9. So when we, when we um, want to dispute with the Almighty, and here's what we do. <laughs> when we tell God how much better we know than He does, when we substitute our finite pseudo-knowledge, wrongly called knowledge, and tell God that we know better than He knows, we're making better choices. We have a better plan. Oh, you know how arrogant that is. I think studies on omniscience are so useful to just put things in perspective as the heavens are higher than the earth. Just humble ourselves as the creature before the Creator and trust that He knows better than we do. And, and yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, sure, I don't want to go there. It's not a pleasant thing, but if this is what God wants, if this is what He has chosen... If he has selected this for the race set before me, well, then I can trust his goodness. I can trust the wisdom of his plan, of his choice. I can trust that he's, he's got reasons for, for taking me down that road. And um, 
I may not like it at the time, but I'll thank him when it's done. I'll, I'll learn from the process, and uh, and maybe at a later stage I'll look back with an appreciation for what it is that that unpleasant test has equipped me to uh, to do. And it may be that some of the worst things you ever experience are what God uses to to tenderize you, to to produce in you a compassion and a sensitivity and a tenderness and a and a, and, and a suitability to come alongside and bear fruit in ways that you couldn't bear before until he puts you through these things first. So we ought to trust in, uh, in the wisdom of his plan in that respect. Omniscience. I don't have it in my notes, but let me just recommend for you um, William Lane Craig. It's a short little booklet. Um, it's a part of a larger series. There's a whole library of books I call, they're, they're called booklets or pamphlets, but it's part of the Ravi Zacharias Apologetics Library. And you can find it at, at Ravi Zacharias' website, rzim.org. Uh, you can get it at Amazon, you can get it at CBD, different places. Um, and, and there's a whole library, there's 20 of them. And, and some of them are more interesting than others. Uh, but the one that I, I, I've read again and again and again and again is the one that's titled, What Does God Know? What Does God Know? All right, and it's by uh, William Lane Craig is the author. What does God know? And I tell you, you can read it in an hour, and then you can reread it and reread it and just keep rereading it. And uh, it's, it's highly edifying in describing um, some of uh, some different expressions like middle knowledge and some other aspects that philosophers going back to to the Middle Ages were were wrestling with in uh, in a lot of ways. All right. It's useful, and I recommend it. Any questions on omniscience, on the what-ifs? Let me give you some, also some passages. I think Kela is a good example. Um, let me find Kela in the Old Testament. The, um, there it is, 1 Samuel 23. It's a useful chapter. It's like Matthew 11. It's actually better than Matthew 11 in some regards. It deals with a counterfactual. It deals with something that doesn't happen but could happen. And if it does happen, then something else is going to happen. But because the first thing didn't happen, then the second thing never happened and none of it happened. Does that make sense? Okay. And see, here's the key. Because there is a flawed definition of omniscience that's held today by Calvinists. All right? And, and it breaks my heart. I think if, if this may actually be a realm of doctrine that might help to rescue some folks from a flawed view. They define omniscience, they define foreknowledge as following. God knows the future only because he has decreed the future. God does not know all the what-ifs. He does not know the things that will not happen because he doesn't decree them to happen. And because he knows, for example, the end from the beginning, he knows every moment from Alpha to Omega, he knows every, everything that will happen, he knows it will happen because he decreed it will happen. And so foreknowledge is caused by the divine decrees. All right. Now, I don't believe the Bible can defend that. But their theology defends that. And they make the decree 
uh, they front load the decree, they make it logically prior to foreknowledge. Okay? And that's a problem, because the Bible doesn't do that. And I think the Bible declares just the opposite. That his foreknowledge logically precedes his decree. The decree was uttered at a point. There was an eternal life conference. There was agreement between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He works all things after the counsel of his will. And it's hard for us to imagine, but in the timeless eternity past of Alpha, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit agreed to the the plan. The Father designed the plan, the Son agreed to execute the plan, and the Holy Spirit agreed to facilitate the Father and the Son in the execution of that plan. And so when we, however you study the divine decrees and however you study Ephesians 1.11, Ephesians 3.11, and all these passages, however you, however you and I comprehend eternity past, that decree happened at a timeless point. All right? Prior to which, God is the I am. Prior to which... God has all the omniscience he's ever had, ever will have. All the omnipotence he's ever had, ever will have. Has all the love and eternal life he's ever had, ever will have. And so if God obtained, as as Calvinism says, if God obtained a certain quantity of foreknowledge based upon what he decreed, you see the problem with that? How God can obtain experientially, sequentially, almost like you and I obtain information. And God's not like that. It makes him subject to time, to to his own time, to his own decree. And now he's a slave of his own decree, as opposed to being consistent to his own nature. So let me show you here with Keilah in in, uh, 1 Samuel 23, if you're not familiar with this story. It's not one of the better known stories in, in the life of David. But they told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are plundering the threshing floors. Now, at this point, David is a, is a fugitive. He has a band of soldiers under him. He's leading a, a band of renegades. He's not the king. Saul is still the king. Saul should be defending Keilah. This is Saul's problem, not David's problem. All right? But you have a president that's not taking the war on terrorism very seriously. And he's kind of ignoring his duties as a king to defend Keilah from the Philistines. And David has an opportunity to grab his soldiers and, and, and go attack some Philistines and, and rescue the Jewish people here. All right. Problem, though, David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go and attack the Philistines? And that's great. Seek the will of the Lord before you make a decision. Lord, is this your will? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and deliver Keilah. God says, yes, it's my will for you to attack and it's my will for you to prevail. You're going to have a victory in this. You're going to rescue Keilah. Okay? Well, boom, will of God, let's go do it. Okay? But David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the ranks of the Philistines? You know, if you're hiding out in some fortresses in the wilderness and you've got some caves and you've got some defensive fortifications and, you know, you're, you're, there's already a price on your head, you can understand the men are going to be a little bit um, reluctant to go and be exposed in a place like Keilah. 
Saul will find out that they're there and they may be surrounded, they may be trapped. Now, now here's David with a problem. And by the way, this, this, you can teach this, this is huge. What if, uh, you know, you're the spiritual leader, you know the will of God, God told you. I mean, duh. God said, attack Hela, attack the Philistines, rescue Hela, go and do it, you will succeed. You know, obviously, it's the will of God, let's do this. Now the men are, eh, we're not so sure. Okay? Can you think of examples like where maybe a, a husband is convinced of the will of God and his wife isn't quite so sure? Or a pastor is convicted that this is the direction a church needs to go and the deacons and the members are like, well, maybe. Okay? So what do you do? You stomp your feet? You become a tyrant? You slap them around and say, dummy, trust me, I know what I'm doing. God told me. Well, is that what David does here? Okay, is that, I don't recommend that for pastors, for husbands. For, that's not uh, the, the tyrannical model. It's not the biblical model for shepherding. Because you are convicted of the will of God, you need to lead those that you're leading to see, to have the same conviction, to see what you see and patiently walk them through it. So David's men are afraid in verse 3. In verse 4, David inquired of the Lord, once more, and the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. Now the men are reassured. The men were invited to be a part of the process, saying, Invite your flock, invite your wife, invite those that you're leading in these matters. Become a part of the process. Seek the will of the Lord with me. Let's go to prayer together. Let's see this, search the scriptures together. So David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines, and he led away their livestock. And struck them with a great slaughter. Thus David delivered the inhabitants of of Keilah. Great story. Okay? Now, problem though. Saul gets word of it. It came about when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, that he came down with an ephod in his hand. And when it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand. For he uh, shut himself in by entering a city with double gates and bars. He's trapped. He's not in his, his hideouts. He's not in his caves. He's not hidden away. I know where he is. I've got him surrounded. I've got him trapped. So Saul summoned all the people for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. Now David knew that Saul was plotting evil against him, so he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. This was a device that was used by the priest to determine the will of God. And David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard for certain that Saul is seeking to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. By the way, this is better than espionage. This is better than your, all the intelligence networks. This is better than satellite uh, coverage of something. You know, just go to the omniscient God of the universe and find out. What does Saul know and how does he know it? And when's he going to get here and what's going to happen next? Now, will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down just as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. There's really two questions. Is Saul coming? And if he gets here, are these Keilah people, are they going to deliver me over? You know, you think, well, how ungrateful are they? Didn't I just rescue them from the Philistines? <laughs> you know, and they're going to now deliver me over to Saul? Thanks a lot, guys. All right, well, cursed is the man that trusts in man, right? So this is his request. And God answers the what-ifs with certainty because his omniscience is aware. 
He's aware of if this happens and if that happens, then this is going to happen. But it requires the combination of all these things. And because this never does happen, that doesn't happen. But it would have if it would have. Make sense? All right. So the Lord says he will come down. And David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. They just scattered. All right. It was an immediate, all right, everybody's on leave. Three-day pass. <laughs> we'll rendezvous back at headquarters in the secret base. Uh, let's just scatter. They went wherever they could go. When it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the pursuit. See, that's the point. Saul never came to Keilah. Because before he got there, he, heard, he got word that David was long gone. So he never came to Keilah. And because he never came to Keilah, he never made the demands of the, of the people of Keilah. And the people of Keilah did not deliver David over because David was long gone. But this is how the sequence of events is vital. Now you've got to ask yourself, if, if God only knows what he decreed, then what did he decree in this passage? And how did he know the what if? Because obviously he didn't decree it, but he knows it. He knows things that he does not decree. He knows that Sodom would survive for 2,000 years under certain circumstances. He never decreed those circumstances. But he knows the reality of those circumstances and the what-ifs and the maybes and the alternate timelines and so forth. If I didn't become a pastor, what would I be? What's the what-if there? I wanted to be a homicide investigator by the time I turned 30. That was my goal. I was going to go into law enforcement. I was going to become a detective. I was going to become a homicide investigator. I wanted to be, by, by age 30, I wanted to be a homicide investigator. Well, that didn't happen. Okay? Is there, a, is there a parallel universe out there somewhere? Can God show me that movie like uh, uh, It's a Wonderful Life or something and show you the alternate universe of what your life would be like? You know, what kind of a miserable, rotten, drunk jerk would I have been as a, as a homicide investigator? I uh, hope not. <laughs> I don't want to see any of that. Because it's diminished glory for Jesus Christ. Who wants to look at that? The plan he's bringing about is his plan and his wisdom to glorify Jesus Christ. That's vital. Okay? Next week we have omnipresence and we'll take it from there. Omnipresence, omnipotence. We'll keep working our way through. Um, we'll see how many more Sundays we'll do this in July. I'm going to be missing a Sunday in August. Radley's going to fill in for me on August 7th. Um, I also want to do a baptism class at some point. If we're going to have a baptism service at the end of August, probably Saturday the 27th, we may do a baptism service uh, at Barton Springs Pool, so pray for that. If we're going to have a baptism service, I want to have a baptism class. I don't want to do any kind of a ritual without reality. I don't want to dunk anybody under the water that doesn't understand the doctrine of why I'm dunking them. Okay? Uh, might need some deacons to help me because Chris is a pretty big, pretty big guy. <laughs> but that's all right. I already told him I'm up for it. We'll try. Okay. But Chris and, and Josh, uh, both Chris Ray and, and Josh Ray, uh, both uh, want to be baptized. So pray for that. Pray for the class and any others that uh, that may want to uh, uh, participate in the, the ritual of water baptism. Um, anyway, so through the summer we'll just keep doing basics and see. Uh, See how the Lord takes us through uh, through the essence box. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for things that are so basic and so easy, and then we realize 
Wow, this is deeper than deep. We could spend the rest of our life just meditating and dwelling and considering and and worshiping, Father, how amazing you are. Great is the Lord and greatly is he to be praised. So, Father, tonight I trust that you have increased our capacity to appreciate your greatness. I ask, Father, that you would increase our capacity to communicate our praise for your greatness. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.